Hello everyone, and welcome back to the Ancestral Elements Podcast. This is Episode 9, Diet Extremes, Vegan versus Carnivore. Before we get going, let's just do a couple of disclaimers. So, as a nutritionist, I am all for people playing around and experimenting with different types of diets. Whether that be a strict vegan diet or a strict carnivore diet, at the end of the day, I just want people to do it safely. And, and they need to make sure that they are mindful of their bodies while on the diet. Okay, so with that being said, let's jump into veganism and the vegan diet. And already, if you're vegan, your temperature might be raising a little bit because a lot of vegans don't consider it a diet. It's more of a lifestyle or a, <laughs> a religion. Uh, but my definition of diet and the actual definition of diet is what a person eats, what a person puts in their body. So if you're vegan and listening to this, just please try to keep a little bit of an open mind here. So veganism. Really the question is, why do people turn to an extreme form of diet? Typically, it is done because people are horrified about factory farming situations and the treatment of animals and that animals have to die for them to be nourished. So a lot of times it immediately becomes a moral argument of should animals have to die for me to be nourished. And I mean, if you've seen any of the footage from factory farms, it's horrifying. I do not condone any factory farming whatsoever. And I can totally, totally understand why people then go to an extreme side of avoiding any animal death, period. Because that is, factory farming is super extreme. And it's the, on the other extreme end of what we do to animals and the mass farming practices that we have in this modern age. It's horrific. The treatment and abuse should never have been done, and it needs to end immediately. And really, by and large, I think this is why a lot of people turn to veganism. It's not typically because people view it necessarily as the ultimate diet for humans to be eating. I think most people would agree that it stems from trying to avoid the abuse and mistreatment of animals. I want to take you through a history of veganism. In 1944, a British gentleman by the name of Donald Watson created the Vegan Society. He, this was the first time that the vegan diet was promoted and kind of written down. He made it very strict. It was no animal products, no dairy, which really at the time marked an extreme perspective because there had never been a diet that had consisted of zero dairy or zero animal products. Vegans love to say that it's an old diet and that it was promoted in places like Greece in the year 500 BC, um, but it wasn't. Those were vegetarian diets. There's been a lot of vegetarian cultures through the years, 
but they all use some type of animal foods. There's a big difference between vegetarianism and veganism. A big difference. Veganism has never, ever been done until 1944, which is really a very important thing to note, not just because of how recent it is, but because of the year. Oh, and quick sidebar, the reason why Donald Watson became vegan was because he witnessed a pig getting slaughtered when he was about 14 years old on his family's farm and vowed that he would never eat meat again. Okay, so why the year 1944 is important. That started, that marked a shift in the way we started industrializing farming. So the current way we farm is through insecticides, herbicides, fungicides, things of that nature. And that all came out of Nazi Germany. It came out of chemical warfare. You had companies like Dow Chemical and Codex Elementaris, which turned into Monsanto, come up um, in the mid and late 40s because they realized you could kill pests from monocropped farming and you could ramp up and scale up agriculture. So it was a shift from organic farming to farming done with chemicals. And because of the style of monocrop agriculture, you need those chemicals to have those plants even remotely survive. And that's when kind of bioengineering came into effect and you had plants genetically modified for glyphosate or what was called Roundup Ready plants. And that's kind of where we're at today with commercial agriculture. And so what I'm getting at is the fact that you cannot sustain a purely vegan diet on organic farming practices because as we know to farm in a way that restores the land through regenerative agriculture you need those animal inputs otherwise you can't do it meaning you need fertilizers you need manures otherwise your soil is poor and you get poor nutrients and you'll become unhealthy very quickly if you eat that food so you can only support veganism on an industrialized agriculture model. And so up until 1944, that had never been done, and it couldn't have been done. That's why no one was vegan. But now it's done worldwide, and it's gaining in popularity. So just know that you can't sustain regenerative agriculture through veganism. It's seriously not possible, which is kind of the first, um, to me, it's the first kind of bump in the road of veganism, because if you need all these modern insecticides and chemicals for veganism, to me, it already is a red flag of, okay, so it's not really that sustainable, because you need these big companies to make all that stuff for you. Even through organic farming and eating organic vegetables and mushrooms and things like that, you still need pharmacological inputs, meaning they may not be using toxic pesticides, but they're still using pesticide control. They use a lot of times essential oils and neem oil and things like that. It still isn't a regenerative 
agriculture. It's still kind of mass-produced monocrop agriculture, even if it's organic. So the history of veganism is an interesting one because you could probably grow enough fruits and vegetables and mushrooms on a piece of land to get enough calories to sustain yourself, but then trying to store those and preserve those for the entire year or growing cycle of those plants and vegetables and fruits, that becomes extremely difficult. It becomes impossible, essentially. You have a logistics issue. And so the only way you can really sustain a proper, balanced vegan diet is through constant inputs, constant vegetables that are shipped from around the world and fruits that are shipped from around the world and mushrooms that are shipped from around the world. You need modern agriculture. And if you tried to do only vegan style farming, your soil's not going to last that long. You're going to deplete the soil very quickly. You need, again, you need animal inputs to build healthy soil. You need manure and fecal remnant for fertilization. So on a historical or a biological level, it already starts to fall apart a little bit. But let's kind of gloss over that and move on. Let's jump into conventional agriculture and habitat loss. So as we all know and all recognize, deforestation around the world is increasing. Look at the Amazon and the amount of deforestation that is occurring there year after year. That all is down to monocropping and conventional style agriculture. Their main crops are the same main crops we grow here in the United States. They're growing genetically modified corn, soybeans, and canola, or what would be rapeseed. Soya is predominantly used for cattle feed in factory farming circumstances, which again is terrible and should never be done. You're not only feeding cattle a diet that isn't a part of their natural biology, but one that is unsustainable for the planet. A lot of those crops, though, go to human consumption, and a lot of them go to ultra-processed foods, a lot of the snack foods we're eating, vegan or not, but especially the growing vegan snack food industry and things like Beyond Burger Meat. One of the main ingredients of Beyond Burger Meat is canola oil. So there's, what I'm saying is there's a demand for this stuff. There's a demand for these ultra-processed seed oils, whether it's in vegan foods or other snack foods. There are fillers, essentially. And just because you're swapping out soy for canola oil doesn't mean it's any better. It's actually worse in a lot of ways. I mean, they're both terrible. And you shouldn't be eating them if you want proper nutrition. But it all plays a factor. So no one is innocent in all of this. I mean, you can blame people that eat meat from factory farms. You can blame vegans. And you can throw insults at each other all day long. But the reality is we're all to blame. And we're all taking at least somewhat part in what's happening to this planet. 
And really, what I mean by habitat loss, it's not just habitat loss for humans. It's habitat loss for the native plant and animal species that are naturally occurring in those areas. I mean, if you think about all of the animals, for example, that are displaced due to commercial farming and commercial agriculture, it's a ridiculous amount. And the reality is, through these massive commercial farming practices, tons of animals die. Millions of animals get chopped up by combines every year. There's honestly no escaping death in any type of eating, any type of diet, whether you're eating meat or not eating meat. Animals will still die. That is the reality. And that's just the hard truth that everybody has to face. It really comes down to having to fight biology when you engage in veganism. I'm going to say that again. It comes down to fighting biology because it's not a biologically sustainable diet for humans to be on for generations. Meaning every vegan who's done it long term has to supplement. They know the importance of supplementation because otherwise it's not sustainable. So again, you need to defer your responsibility to get your nutrients to outside sources. And you're fighting the world's biology. You're fighting literally natural occurring biology due to the mass agriculture practices it takes to sustain even a little bit of the population on veganism. Because without proper animal inputs, your soils are depleted, meaning their defenses drop and you need chemical inputs to keep those plants alive. So it's this tug of war, it's this push and pull of having to conquer biology, um, which a lot of people are okay with. You know, we've again been so disconnected from the natural process and the natural world that that's the answer to a lot of people. Um, and if that's how you feel, that's, that's fine. Um, if that's what you want to do and that's how you want to go about eating and getting your nutrients, um, go for it. But know that it's an experiment. It's never been done through human history, ever. Again, there was a lot of vegetarians, but no one has been a strict vegan. We've never seen generation upon generation upon generation of strict vegans eating zero animal food. Most vegans agree that breastfeeding is okay, um, which technically speaking, if you're a staunch vegan, that would be, you know, out of the parameters because you're eating animal food because we are animals. But most vegans realize that it's the healthiest form. Um, there have been some studies done on the nutritional differences between breast milk of vegans and non-vegans, and that gets a little interesting. Um, it, when you're breastfeeding and vegan, most vegans know that they have to supplement with some type of B12. It's advised against being vegan when you are in the crucial developmental stages, so from infancy to young childhood age. The majority of the medical community advises against being vegan because you need a lot more nutrients 
higher protein, calcium, B12 for proper development. So it's not strongly suggested that you are vegan when you're young, which is an important thing to note because you need a different suite of nutrients than, say, a fully formed adult or even teenager for that matter that has gone through puberty. You may be able to sustain it for quite a while without any real ill-sighted health effects, which kind of brings us back around to the founder. Remember, he was 14 when he vowed never to eat any more animal products. So he had gone through puberty, at least mostly. So he spent the first 14 years of his life eating animal foods, which typically is what most people do. I think it's very, very rare that you have parents raising infants on vegan diets, maybe vegetarian diets, but not vegan diets. When that happens, there's usually pretty bad health outcomes. And it's interesting because you have this 14-year-old kid, Donald Wallace, witnessing a pig getting slaughtered and then taking a vow of never eating any animal foods again. And then in his later adult life, starting this vegan society, which still is up and running today. It's a very, very prominent um, proponent of the vegan diet, and it produces a lot of studies each and every year. But I have some questions about it, because to me, you have this 14-year-old kid who witnesses a pig getting slaughtered. And yeah, any death is hard to watch. It's a tough thing to internalize and know that you have to do. And remember, any diet that you're eating, any food that you're eating, there's going to be animal death associated with it. I mean, you drive or walk down the street and you're killing animals. You're killing insects and bugs, right? Most vegans probably kill mosquitoes that land on them. So there becomes this hierarchy of what animals you can kill and what animals you can't kill. And to me, I don't like that. I think every animal should be treated as sacred. You would be hard-pressed to find a vegan that knows the cycle of salmon or knows the life cycle of deer or knows the life cycle of turkey. You would be really hard-pressed to find a vegan that supports hunting through fish and game and wildlife management because that's who supports wildlife management is hunters. That's where they primarily get all their funds from through things like the Pittman-Robinson Act where we're taxed 11% on all hunting goods and that goes directly into conservation and wildlife management. And if you're vegan and you don't donate to wildlife management, and you claim to this moral high ground and ethical high ground to love all animals, you should be supporting wildlife management and habitat restoration. And if you're not, then what animals do you love? Do you love domesticated animals? Farm animals? Because once you start putting a hierarchy on life like that, things get really messy very, very quickly. See, to me, all kingdoms of life should be treated sacred. I don't care if it's a cricket or a five-point buck. It all deserves to be treated as something very sacred. And And the way I look at it is what a better way to honor that species and honor that animal than to take it into your body and to build your own body out of it. To me, that is the 
utmost honor to be able to nourish yourself and build your own body out of that animal's body. Because animals die, right? No one gets off this earth alive. If we're born, we're gonna die. That's the reality. And to me, this jump to extreme veganism and not wanting to harm any animal or have any death come to any animal, to me, that's a 14-year-old kid who didn't know the nuance of life and death. To me, that's a 14-year-old kid who never wanted to grapple with this idea that things have to die. To me, that is a 14-year-old kid who wanted to avoid and hide from the fact that things die. And to jump to such an extreme is interesting, very interesting. And often the argument that is used kind of against all this is that, well, plants are sentient beings. And honestly, I kind of call bullshit on that because what you see with something like a mushroom and mycelium underneath the earth that interacts with the trees and communicates directly with the trees and has a symbiotic relationship with the trees and then comes up as a fruit body to form what we see as a mushroom is amazing to me. And if that's not sentient, I don't know what is. That's no different than a deer breathing in oxygen and breathing out carbon dioxide. Mushrooms do that. So the fact that, you know, you claim plants can't feel, I don't buy it. I think they can. You may not be able to detect that they feel like you see an animal, but I, that's an argument standing on shaky ground to me. Or there's other studies. If you look at different music that's played with plants, they grow better. Or just interacting with them and with positivity, plants grow better. These studies have been done time and time again. So the fact that people try to claim that plants don't recognize some type of human energy or input is ridiculous to me. Because they do. That's been debunked. So again, it's this hierarchy of life that you're, you're putting on yourself, right? The fact that you think it's okay to kill tons of plants and displace tons of wildlife and native plants to a region, to me, that's not a whole lot better than humanely dispatching a deer or humanely fishing and doing it in a way that conserves conservation, right? Doing it a way that you get conservation through use because that's what the North American model for wild game and fish management is. It's conservation through use. Just like you have to conserve your body by using it and by exercising, the natural biology in the world is no different. You need to manage it. Species have a carrying capacity, whether that's animal, plant, fungi, protist, or algae, right? Everything that is living on this planet has a natural carrying capacity. There's a balance to everything, and if you're not engaged in that process, then you're disconnected from that process, which we have the luxury of being dis disconnected from all of it if we choose to be. But personally, I don't want to be disconnected from any of it. That's where I draw strength, and I draw a lot of peace of mind. I draw all that from a natural environment and being a part of a natural environment. I mean, I was mushroom foraging with my wife Marie this last Sunday. We got three different species of mushroom, which felt amazing. I feel just as good doing that as I do fishing or hunting. And I'm new to fishing and hunting. Well, not so much fishing, but hunting, definitely. But I like to take part in that process. I like to have sovereignty over the food that I'm bringing in. I like to take responsibility 
and it takes work. You burn calories. But then, you know what I did? The next day, I went to Costco, and <laughs> there's food everywhere. And it brings me zero satisfaction to bring that food home. It's the opposite. I spent $300. <laughs> I have to work so much just to pay for food, right? And it brings me, I take no pleasure in it. So being a part of the life cycle and of the planet, I promise will bring you satisfaction that you couldn't dream of. And with veganism, that gets hard to do. You have to disconnect yourself a little bit because you're disconnecting yourself from a very important kingdom of life, the animal kingdom. We're animals. So it's an interesting concept, I guess, to all this. So I want to give you some just borderline statistics on the type of people that are vegan. As you might expect, 88% of vegans are living in urban areas because most people are living in urban areas, so that kind of makes sense. 79% of vegans are female, which I found interesting because one benefit and one thing that is portrayed a lot with veganism is the fact that you can manage a lot of weight and you can lose a lot of weight because you're not consuming very high density caloric foods. And that's true. And there's some benefits to that, definitely. But I think a lot of times there's a tendency to wrap it up with maybe some body issues, which as we know, at least in the culture of the United States, that's a pretty common issue for females to worry about their bodies and have some body image issues surrounding that. Um, and there's definitely a correlation there to some degree. I think a lot of people get into it, like we started the episode for the moral reasons, and a lot of people get into it because they want to manage some type of symptom or health concern, which neither of those are bad things. I think those are both coming from good places, but I found that statistic very interesting. And let me be clear that not even 1% of the world population is vegan, so we're dealing with a just a fraction of the population, although often a vocal fraction of the population, it's very, very small. The vegan industry gets to be really, really interesting because that's, you start to get into some pretty big money. I mean, it's nothing compared to beef, but it is an emerging industry and one that's gained quite a bit of steam in the recent decade or so. It's a $14 billion industry and it's protected projected growth is almost triple in the next decade or two, which um, when you're looking at companies like Beyond Burger Meat and other vegan types of kind of ultra processed food science type of foods, that figure gets gets interesting because then you're you're dealing with, you know, multiple billion dollar industries and there's a lot to be profited and there's marketing campaigns that go into that undoubtedly and the research gets marketed towards a vegan lifestyle and probably over glamorizes it a little bit because they're not talking about it from a historical context or an anthropological context it's only about the health that you have now they don't talk about generational health which is kind of my beef with veganism or <laughs> i don't know fake beef is that a thing? Um, yeah, I mean, it gets marketed towards people that worry about their health in the moment. They worry about managing diabetes or heart disease or cholesterol, which are definitely good things to be worried about. I would be worrying about those things too if 
I had underlying metabolic issues. And there are benefits to going vegan for a while. The average vegan is vegan for about three years, um, which, you know, I think for some people that could be a good duration, actually. You could clear up a lot of underlying metabolic syndromes by cutting out a lot of the junk we get from the standard American diet. You don't see a lot of vegans that have been doing it for 50 years. Usually by the time you hit about 10 years is when nutrient deficiencies really start to pile up. So for example, there's a 43% increase in overall bone fractures, especially of the hip and ankles with people that have been on a strict vegan diet for 10 years. So unless it's extremely carefully managed, you need to be very, very careful about what you're supplementing with. And you need to be very, very cognizant of where your blood levels are with micro and macronutrients all the time. And for me, that's not something I want to monitor all the time. I don't want to be on a diet that I have to supplement on. I would much rather be on an omnivory type of diet where I don't need to worry about strict supplementation all the time. It just doesn't seem that balanced to me. And anthropologically speaking, it's not. I mean, again, no human hunter-gatherer culture had ever been on a strict vegan diet. It wasn't sustainable. And we talked a little bit about that in the fad diet episode back in episode seven, how only through plant domestication, the vegan diet really became possible because the plants that were eaten by hunter-gatherers weren't domesticated and they had very astringent medicinal compounds in them, meaning you couldn't get enough calories to balance out the medicinal compounds in the food. And so eating it would be like eating only culinary herbs. It'd be like eating only rosemary or and sage and oregano and thyme and trying to get 2,000 calories a day from those. You'd become pretty sick and the blood would be built up with a ton of medicinal compounds. Um, it's just not sustainable. Uh, so you only see veganism through domestication. And again, for me, that's kind of the main argument. But a lot of people don't really care about that. A lot of people like domestication and they like monocropped industrial farming. They think it's the way of the future. Me, I don't think that any unsustainable practice should be a part of the future. It may be, but this is just my personal opinion. And I want to make that extremely clear that I am not for genetic engineering of food and the manipulating of genetics to increase crop yields or something of that nature. I would much rather move to a sustainable model and one that is regenerative, that doesn't require as many human inputs, because that's the thing about genetic engineering. It requires endless human inputs, meaning there's going to be industries around that. There's not a whole lot of industry around having a small regenerative agriculture farm on some acreage you live on. You can sustain your family and live well off of something like that. You become It becomes a place of sovereignty rather than a place where you need to give up your power and responsibility to other people because you don't have the resources to do it with. Because that's the thing, it's really hard to do things like sequester carbon when you're tilling up the land and you don't have ample root systems and grasses to store water and secure carbon. But I mean, that should probably be a whole nother episode to another podcast, which I'll probably do that in the future. Um, so <laughs> I don't know. How's this uh, for veganism? Have you had enough? Are we done? 
I just kind of wanted to let you guys know where I stand. Really, my final thoughts on this are try it if you want to. You know, um, it's your body. I am not going to tell you what to do with your body and what diet to go on. I'm just basing my nutritional information off of direct experience in the field and through 300,000 years or so of modern humans eating and surviving generationally on a natural landscape and on this planet. That's what I base my nutrition information on. I don't like to base it on 1944 domesticated monocropped foods. But if you want to do that, um, try it. Let me know how you feel. I hope it works out. I really do. But just know it's an experiment, one that's never been done generationally. So know that going in. That's the only thing I ask, that you know that this is an experiment. And speaking of other food experiments, let's uh, go into the carnivore diet. So this is essentially the other side of the coin from veganism. This is a diet where you only consume animal foods and meat more specifically. And when I said veganism was new, this diet is like, this diet is like a baby with the umbilical cord still attached to it. It's so new, the past, I don't know, five years or so, and it only gained slight popularity within the last maybe two years. So, like veganism, it's never been done in human history. There were cultures that predominantly lived on animal foods, such as cultures in the Arctic. They predominantly lived on whale blubber and whale meat, but what they did is they ate organs, and they ate the contents of stomachs and intestines. So they were getting things like phytoplanktons in their diet, and they were getting grasses from the undulates that were on the landscape, because undulates, deer family essentially, have to eat plants. They're predominantly herbivores. Now, deer do eat a little bit of meat, but that can be a different story to tell, I guess. And so what I'm getting at is there were plants around. There was things like lichen around as well, which again, you've heard me talk about lichen. It's a hybrid species. It's in the protist kingdom of phenology and class system, where it's part fungi part plant. And so they were using plants occasionally, not often, because you can only get them a little bit in the Arctic when you get some snow and ice melt. There'll be some plants that pop up, but they were using plant food. They weren't living just off of animal protein, which is sometimes an argument for the carnivore diet. Or another popular argument is the fact that hunter-gatherers didn't consume as many plants. But again, back to why they didn't consume many plants is because those plants had extreme medicinal properties to them. That would be like, again, that would be like us trying to eat 2,000 calories of rosemary or sage. You know, we're not going to do it. You don't need as much of those because they're medicinally active in a human body. So it makes sense that they didn't consume as many of those plants. They had more nutrition in those plants. They didn't need to consume, you know, five pounds of domesticated carrot, you know, before they turned orange. In some ways, I think the carnivore diet has a lot to do with just kind of a rebuttal against strict veganism. You know, it the pendulum has kind of swung all the way over, um, and they're promoting this idea of, you know, only animal foods, and that's the healthiest way. And again, like veganism, it's going to be beneficial to the body. Anytime you are on a strict diet like veganism or carnivore, you're going to also suppress the immune system. Does that make sense? You're going to suppress the activity of the immune system, meaning if you have 
chronic underlying metabolic conditions, those things will go away. So you can do those things on either extreme, but know that they're an extreme, and in my opinion, something that shouldn't be done for a long period of time. Like I've said before, I'm all for veganism. Be a vegan in the springtime when your body's ready for more plant foods. After you come out of a winter of being carnivore, that would be the best. Be carnivore for three months and then be vegan for three months. That's fantastic. That's seasonal balance. That's how a lot of people ate. You ate what was fresh and what was in season and you stored what you could. I mean, obviously you had wild game and meat and some protein kind of all through, but you know, think about it. You, it's deer season in the fall for a reason. That's when they go into what's called the rut and it's their mating season. So they get more active and they're moving on the landscape. You're going to take advantage of those migratory herds moving on a landscape during mating season. They make stupid decisions. They want to mate. That's why we hunt when we hunt. Same thing with fishing, right? Fish spawn upriver. You take advantage of that, right? You take advantage of the fish runs in the ocean. You take advantage of what is in season. And that's what we've done, historically speaking, from an anthropological perspective. And that is always going to be the best nutritionally as well. So the carnivore diet, like veganism, there is kind of a uh, spectrum, really, of extremes. There are some that just eat meat with literally nothing else. Um, there's some accounts of the psychologist Jordan Peterson and his daughter Michaela Peterson eating just steaks because they both have huge immune system dysfunction. And for them, it may work for a little while, but I guarantee other things are going to pop up as a result of this, especially if they're not eating well-balanced amino acids in their meat. If they're eating factory farmed meat where the cattle are feeding on soy, then you're going to have some major health concerns because of that, if that's all you're eating. The other people that promote this are doctors. Uh, I say that, but um, there's a handful of doctors kind of actively promoting this. Um, this was popularized by a physician, Sean Baker. He was kind of a, and still is a big proponent of the carnivore diet. He kind of brought it into popular culture. And luckily, he has the knowledge of promoting regenerative agriculture and eating grass-fed organs, which is extremely important if you're going to be on this diet for a variety of reasons we'll get into in a bit. But that is one great aspect of this diet, an extreme diet, is the fact that these people are promoting regenerative agriculture practices. So I'll give them that. And that's kind of the reason I wanted to explain the difference between regenerative agriculture and commercially done agriculture, whether it's organic or not. I wish I could give you some statistics on all this, but it's just too new of a diet. They don't even really have a lot of studies on it. There's some lab work from individuals that have been on it a few years, but it's just hasn't been done long term. Um, and I guess time will tell what this does to people. But man, if you look back again, no one's done this. And there's a reason why nobody's done this. Um, somebody 300,000 years ago or further back into history 
probably would have tried this. Uh, and there's a reason why a balanced kind of omnivorous diet came into fashion in the first place. So those of you sitting here thinking that this diet just sounds ridiculous and there's no way you could survive off this diet, um, yes and no, I guess is my answer to that. You technically could, theoretically, on paper, you could if this was done with extreme carefulness. You would have to be eating a ton of organ meat because that's the highest nutrition of an animal. You would have to be drinking a lot of bone broth because then you're getting things like calcium and you're getting bone marrow and things like that. And you should be eating a ton of bone marrow if you're on this type of diet. You should also be probably supplementing with things like colostrum powder which would be classified as okay on this diet. Um, if you're not doing those things, you're going to have a rough time. You also need to be eating raw organ meats and muscle meats um, in the form of like tar tartar or something like that because you need vitamin C. Um, if you're wondering about vitamin C on this diet and getting scurvy, if you are eating grass-fed beef or wild game, you can get vitamin C from raw liver and raw muscle meat. That is um, something that you can do, but it's got to be raw. It can't be cooked because vitamin heat destroys vitamin C at about 120 degrees. That's why a lot of raw food vegan restaurants... Um, they keep everything below 120 degrees to kind of maintain those nutrients and vitamin C profiles. So, yeah, you've got to be eating some raw meats as well. Um, yeah, so things start to get a bit extreme if you're not eating any plant foods. You can get honey. Um, that's acceptable where because that's an animal food. Um, that's why vegans, strict vegans, don't eat any honey. Um, so that is a super important thing as well to keep your immune system built up a little bit with this diet. So, yeah, this is an extreme diet similar to veganism where... You need to be very, very careful about the different types of nutrients you're putting in your body and the balance you're getting through all of those. You might be asking yourself, hey, Travis, what about the heterocyclic amines? Well, yeah, it can be an issue. Um, those are what comes out of charred meat. You might have heard meat causing cancer. Um, yes, technically, heterocyclic amines are carcinogenic, but again... Like with any nutrition science, there is some nuance to that. Those studies you find where they state that meat causes cancer, they are pretty skewed. They looked at, they lumped red meat in with a lot of processed meats like bologna and spam and hot dogs, things of that nature, um, which are definitely carcinogenic to a degree. The charring of something like grass-fed meats that changes things a lot because, again, back to this idea of the amino acids in the meat, the amino acid profile in the muscle that the cows or wild game takes up, those different genetics change the composition of the muscle. It changes those amino acids in the muscle. When you eat those, you're going to have some protected mechanisms against those carcinogenic compounds. And also, if you include something like rosemary on your meat or in the marinade, then it reduces those hydrocyclical amines by usually like 92%. So, I mean, the point becomes kind of silly when you can just add in herbs and black pepper and things like that that are have antioxidant properties. Um, it takes care of that problem immediately. And also, just because you are consuming carcinogenic compounds from time to time in small amounts 
does not mean it's going to cause cancer. You have something called cellular redox, which is the cell's ability to discard harmful materials from itself. Now, if that cellular redox pathway is nice and clear, then you can discard things as they come into your body, things like mold and mycotoxins and even some small carcinogenic compounds, which, you know, that can be, that'll probably be a whole other podcast episode as well about cellular redox and the way that operates in the body. But your body should be able to deal with some environmental factors. I mean, if you think about, again, 300,000 years of the humans being in this current form that we're in, cooking meat over an open fire was a nightly practice or close to it. So the fact that charring some meat could cause cancer, that doesn't really add up. And those studies are usually only done with factory farmed meat, meaning that amino acid profile is a high omega-6 amino acid, which omega-6 is inflammatory. That's the difference between omega-6 and omega-3. Omega-6 is pro-inflammatory, and omega-3 is anti-inflammatory. You need both. And historically, biologically, you need a one-to-one ratio of both. Since we're eating so many processed plant oils like canola and soy lecithins, which is an emulsifier in a lot of processed foods or in oils. We're getting usually about a 15 to 1 or a 20 to 1 omega-6 to omega-3 fatty acid ratio in our diet. And that is not biologically normal. You would never have that biologically speaking. Um, And that could very well be the reason for such high inflammation in this culture. So the amino acid profile really matters when it comes to eating meat because that will eventually change what your body's made of as well. So eating grass-fed and grass-finished beef, you're going to be way better off and you're going to be getting far more of a balanced one-to-one omega-6 to omega-3 fatty acid ratio than you would be if you're eating factory farmed meat. That's why I don't condone condone eating any factory farmed meat. It's terrible for your health. And that's another thing with veganism. You got to be really careful because if you start getting into vegan meal kits and things like that with preservatives in them or eating vegan donuts, you know, any packaged vegan food, that's going to be extremely high in omega-6 fatty acids. It's really hard to get good, proper sources of omega-3s in a vegan diet, unless you're supplementing usually with seaweeds and things of that nature, because most people aren't just chowing down on seaweed a whole lot. You should be, but most people aren't. The other thing about these HCAs is the fact that studies have never tested them on wild game. So you have no idea. The closest we've gotten is grass-fed beef that they've tested on, and they're more protective. But if you think about wild game and what, let's say, an elk is eating, then they're eating so many different varieties of plants than a pasture-raised cattle are eating, right? And again, as we've seen with antioxidants, with herbs, and that protection that, say, rosemary has when you cook it, I guarantee you there's a transfer of protection due to the different plant varieties that a wild game species is eating on the landscape. I bet you have virtually no HCAs after grilling present in that meat. I mean, obviously, I don't know. I shouldn't say I guarantee it because there's been no studies done by it. But I would be highly, highly surprised if that meat, if wild game wasn't 
more protective than, say, grass-fed, grass-finished cattle. Okay, so that's probably enough on heterocyclic amines. Let's move on to another possible deficiency in fiber, both fiber that is soluble and insoluble. So when on the carnivore diet, that's going to be another challenge. Some proponents of this say that humans don't really need fiber in their diet, um, and that by only eating meat, your metabolism will change and the gut flora will change to where you don't need fiber, which uh, the first part is absolutely true. Your gut profile and the microbiome and the microbiota will definitely change 100%. You see that in vegans as well. The microbiota is extremely different. It's um, not as diverse in vegans as it is, say, omnivores, because you're cutting out a complete kingdom of food. You're cutting out an animal kingdom. Um, of course, the microbiome isn't going to be as robust as it is for people eating both plants, animals, and especially eating all the kingdoms. The more you eat, the more the more species you eat, the more robust your microbiome is going to be. Um, and same thing goes with carnivores. It's not going to be as robust as omnivores. It's going to be a lot different. You're going to have a lot more bacteria like E. coli in the gut and colonizing the gut, which isn't a bad thing unless it's way, way out of balance. Um, everybody has E. coli in the gut. It's, uh, it's only when things get kind of mutated that it um, causes digestive issues. So yeah, the microbiome will definitely change. And again, there's no studies to know whether or not it's going to affect the need for fiber or not. One way to get fiber on this diet, and this is a bit of a stretch, but you could eat tendon and cartilage. Um, that has That's essentially fascial tissue. Um, it's not a muscle, just um, connective tissue. So you would get some fiber in that aspect. It would be insoluble and insoluble to some degree. But yeah, that would be, if you ate a lot of that, you could be getting fiber that way. Yeah, so it again, it is possible to get at least a little bit of fiber if you're eating cartilage and tendon. The carnivore diet gets tricky because there's not many people doing it. It's never been done before and there's zero studies on it. So it's very, very much an experiment. Like veganism is an experiment. This is a brand new experiment. We only have a few years of data. I don't like to go to diets that have been only in existence for a short period of time. There's not enough. There's not generational data. That's my, again, that's my qualm with veganism is the fact that there's no generational data. There's no data that vegans can have vegan kids and those vegans can have vegan kids and there's no detrimental effects down the line. I would be really surprised if there wasn't. Just like this diet, I would be really surprised if long term you could have carnivore people having carnivore babies and those babies having carnivore babies and not have any detrimental effects. I think there would be. Again, there is a reason why we are omnivorous for a human species. So again, experiment if you want to. Try it out. See how you feel. I think no matter what you choose, if you have immune system issues, it'll help for a short time. But again, 
I wouldn't recommend it long term. Again, if you want to be carnivore, be carnivore in the winter and then be vegan in the spring, right? Keep things balanced. Um, I would toggle the two if you want to go to extremes, but why go to extremes when you don't have to? You could just thoughtfully incorporate good sources of meat and good sources of vegetables and fruits and fungi into your diet and get a varied number of species. That's the thing. If you look at hunter-gatherer populations, if you want to talk about the microbiome, which, man, I'll do another episode on that too, but they, hunter-gatherer groups, let's take the Hadza, for example. It's been documented that they have the most robust microbiome in the entire world out of anybody. They're eating up to 600 different species of food per year. You know what we're eating on average as Americans? 30. 30 different species. That is a huge difference. There's a reason why the microbiome in our guts are a wreck. And there's a reason why there's now a study of interest of the microbiome, because people are realizing how much it affects the brain, the immune system. And so you need to think about the types of food that you're getting into your body, not just macro and micronutrient levels, but the different types of species you're getting into your body, because that's going to all build this robust colony of probiotic and biotic materials. This microbiota is going to build and build, and it's going to fill your body with nutrients. That's the difference of this. And so when you go to any extreme, like these two diets, you're going to be in uncharted waters and go at it at your own risk because no one's done it before. You're pioneering something brand new. Usually things uh, aren't that smooth, (laughs) especially when you're dealing with human physiology and trying to do extreme things. Typically, it's not that sustainable. So honestly, the more I look at this through a nutritional lens, the more I realize it's honestly just about kind of staying in the middle of the of the road. If you do that, by and large, you're going to be okay. I mean, obviously, you need to be thoughtful about where your food is coming from. And I think that that's what both of these diets touch on. I mean, they come out of good intent. I think they're extreme in their approach, but it doesn't mean that people that are eating this way are bad people on either side. There is a tendency to, like we've talked about, food becomes emotional. It becomes a part of your identity. And I think that's where vegans are kind of coming from um, with their eating habits. It becomes a community and one that they really latch onto. It becomes essentially a religion. It's kind of like a new religion where because a lot of people have kind of come out of uh, indoctrinating theories, they gravitate towards other ones, you know. Um, Science is kind of that way now in a weird way. Not to get on this tangent, but it kind of is. It's kind of the new religion. Um, And you need to be careful when people get this emotional about things. You need to really... I always find it helpful to just take a step back and look at things from a very broad approach throughout human history and human evolution because a lot of these ideas are pretty extreme and nutrition is no exception. There are going to be more extreme diets and more polarizing debates and studies that come out year after year after year, and you're going to have to do your best to sift through them. And that's why I really want to give you guys an anthropological lens to look through nutrition research 
or at least diets and food in general, because that gives you what humans on a biological level have been eating. And our biology hasn't changed. Our DNA hasn't changed. We're still the same humans. We still need the same things. Our environment has changed, which will change the expression of our genes, but we haven't changed as a human species. So with all that being said, um, I am going to talk more about epigenetics and how food affects our genetics in upcoming episodes. Um, that is truly an interest of mine with nutrition. In nutrition, it's called nutrigenomics or nutrigenetics. So you will hear more episodes of me talking about that, and I will talk to you guys very soon. Thank you for listening to the Ancestral Elements podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe on iTunes or Spotify and leave me a rating and review. This will help people find the podcast so we can grow the audience. Thank you so much for listening.